In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. So we've decided we're going to do something a little bit different today and answer some more personal questions that our followers have submitted via Instagram and Patreon. And I realized that we might not necessarily always share that much about ourselves. My vision for the podcast was always making it about the legal issues and what was in documents and what's going on on the shows and not necessarily about us. But I figured maybe some of you would want to know more things about who we are and what we bring to the table and the process by which we've gotten to where we are today. So, yeah, this is going to be a little bit more personal and there will be some Bravo at the end. So don't worry. And some reality TV stuff at the end. But for the most part, we'll be answering personal questions about ourselves. Anything to add? I'm really excited because Ceci and I talk a lot, but we're both so busy. In fact, I probably text message Ceci more than any other person throughout the day. But we're both so busy and we want to do such a good job on the podcast that a lot of times we get straight down to business when we start to record because we only have so much free time. I consider Ceci one of my best friends, but there's some things I don't know about you in here. So I'm I'm really excited to hear your answers. Yeah. Likewise. And I always feel a little bit more guarded on the podcast. I just, I don't know, it might be like my personal preference not to share that much. So yeah, I'm excited to share and likewise hear your answers as well. Personal history. Where did you grow up? You want to take that one? I grew up in Central Florida. I love the natural beauty of Florida and I miss it and I want to go back. Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California. That's where I was until I went to college and it was various cities throughout Southern California. And I went to college in Northern California. I really wanted to go as far away as I could. But I landed just north, (laughs) which is still kind of far. California is a pretty big state. And then law school went to upstate New York and then practiced in New York. And I just I feel like when people say, where did you grow up? Like they mean your childhood to adulthood years. But I feel like a lot of my formative years were in New York. So I practiced there for four and a half years, moved to Houston, Texas. That's where I was when we started the podcast. Yeah. Then moved to San Francisco. I move a lot and I am now moving back to Southern California to Los Angeles. So I'm like a nomad. I just can't figure out where to settle. And I feel fortunate that I've experienced so many cities. Yeah, I think that makes you a better lawyer, too, because you have lived in different areas and you have different perspectives because people in different parts of the country have totally different attitudes. One of my favorite movies is My Cousin Vinny. And that's a great example of that, about how they had to be there and understand the culture of Alabama because they're from New York and it's totally different. But yeah, you've moved at least three times since I've known you. (laughs) (laughs) I just I can't figure it out. Hopefully this is the hopefully it's it. But also it's interesting because we don't overlap really at all. I think Texas was the only overlap. But even then we were in different parts. And Houston and Austin are very different. Mm -hmm. So what was your first car? (laughs) 
My first car was a Toyota Corolla. My mom bought it for me for, I think, my 16th or 17th birthday. So very generous of her. And then she got approached by the car dealership because they wanted to do a commercial with people who had actually purchased the car. And she was like, no, don't use me. Use my daughter. So I was in a local Toyota Oh, my Corolla God. Do you have yeah. a copy of that anywhere? I do. I put it up on YouTube under an old account. So it's on there. I think it was primarily on Spanish television, so I didn't get to see it in the wild. I think my grandma saw it. You have to post that on our Patreon. You have to post. (laughs) You have to. Okay. I'll post it. And they didn't use me talking because I sounded too like I was trying to sell the car. I was like, well, I'm not a natural (laughs) at this. I was like, the steering is great. Like, I'm not... (laughs) I don't know. How old are you? How old are you? uh, 17 or 18. I was in high school. Oh, my God. I cannot wait to see this. Yeah. And my mom says it like paid off itself. So that was cool. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. I got a car the day after I turned 16. My dad gave me a 1982 Camaro in 1990. Six and it was the Chevy color Aztec gold. It had rather large tires in the back. It was rear wheel drive. It was not the ideal car for a Midwest climate. My car was actually passed down to my brother. We have an 11 year age gap and he ended up totaling it. So RIP that car. (laughs) Yeah, I wrecked the Camaro and then as punishment, I got a 1979 lime green Buick Regal, which was very embarrassing. Everyone in my high school in the Midwest was super wealthy and was driving their parents' hand-me-down Mercedes or BMW. And now, actually, I would love having that. It had green shag carpeting, and it was in flawless condition. What's a silly, funny memory from your childhood? God, I was trying to think about how to answer this, and I had a very unusual childhood. I was so obsessed with reading. My grandma taught me how to read when I was four, and I read full books. And I was so obsessed with books. You know how parents worry about screen time now? My mom would literally take books away from me and tell me to go do something else So I would just go outside and read the book. And I used to sneak books places. I was obsessed with reading. And then I didn't know how to pronounce a lot of the words that I learned because I had read them in books and I knew what they meant. But then later on, I would pronounce them wrong throughout elementary and middle school. I've heard like you shouldn't make fun of the way people pronounce words because they probably learned it from reading them. So be mindful of that. Not everyone like hears those words, but totally, totally relatable. (laughs) I really can't think either. Yeah, I didn't think of about this one before recording. I think one that comes to mind, my aunts would tease me because I would call it Booty and the Beast (laughs) instead of Beauty and the Beast. Booty and the Beast? Yeah, and they would call me Booty, and I just kind of fit. That is adorable. Yeah, yeah. And then they'd like also say, Crazy Old Maurice, like run around the house telling me, Crazy Old Maurice. And I'm like, I'm not Maurice. <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing that comes to mind. I, yeah. I love that booty and the beast. I might put <laughs> you as booty in my phone now. So. <laughs> okay. Where were you before law school? What jobs have you had? I guess it says, Who were you? Oh, who were you? Who was I? I feel like I could answer this for a really long time. But before law school, I guess like growing up, I was always performing. My mom put me in dance when I was really young. So I was always dancing around, doing performances. I was in a professional salsa group. We would go around doing performances and competing and going to various showcases. Like I traveled to New York and I was pretty young. It was from when I was like 11 until mid-teens I was performing. I was also doing dance classes at studios. And then I was in our like high school dance team. So we competed there as well. I kind of stopped in college. In high school, I also took up, well, middle school, I took up choir. And then in high school, I was in two choirs throughout my time there. So I think it's safe to say I really wanted to be a performer. So much so that I wanted to take up theater as well in high school. And my counselor was like, are you gonna go to Broadway? And I was like, oh, wait, am I not supposed to be doing that? Like, (laughs) okay, let me like switch out theater for AP chemistry instead. But I just loved being on stage and dancing and singing and doing all that. So that's, I guess, who I was before law school and then college. So college, like, yeah, I just kind of kept my head. No, that's a lie. I didn't keep my head down. (laughs) I worked hard. I had a lot of fun. And then, yeah, landed at law school. But my, and not landed, I worked really hard. But my first job, (laughs) 
I haven't had careers before being a lawyer, if that makes sense. I have had jobs. I worked at Starbucks was my first job, and I worked at a pool. Were you a lifeguard? I can't swim. No. (laughs) Wait, you can't swim? I didn't know that about you. Yeah, I can survive. They made us do like a lap at the pool as part of like if you worked there, you have to be able to do a lap. And that was very difficult for me. I was like the front desk person that would register people for summer classes or check them in to use the pool and put the wristbands on Ah, and like flirt with the lifeguards. But I was not a lifeguard and they offered to teach me how to swim. But I don't know. I was like in high school and I was like, oh, you're so cute. Yeah. So I've had jobs. And then I worked at a law firm before I went to law school for a year um, just because I wanted a separation between college and law school. And then I went to law school and became a lawyer. So what did you do for the law firm and what kind of law firm was it? So it was a law firm here in San Francisco and they did a lot of real estate. So I was helping out. They called me a clerk, but I did like a lot of editing of documents and then helping with due diligence for real estate closings. Mm. I was like, I don't like it. (laughs) That was very transactional and corporate. And I already knew going into it, I wanted to do litigation. So that just sealed the deal. I was like, this is, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. But the guy I worked for, he still works here. I should reconnect with him. He was really nice. And he gave me so much advice for writing my essays and getting into law school. I probably wouldn't have gotten in without his supervision and help. Oh, yeah. You got to send him a present. Or thank you note. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What about you? Well, I had a lot of jobs. I started working when I was 14. I worked in my dad's car dealership as the sort of kind of receptionist file clerk. And they were just kind of giving me odd things to do. But I'm a very friendly person. And I started there and I was like, really excited to meet everyone. And none of the mechanics or car salesmen would talk to me. I would literally say hi to them and they would run away. And I thought they just didn't like me, but it turns out they were all just afraid of my dad and my dad had told them all to stay away from me. So (laughs) it's fair. It's like, do not talk to my daughter. (laughs) It would have been nice if he would have told me that beforehand instead of just me thinking no one wants to talk or say hi. (laughs) And then I worked in retail. I always had jobs because it was way easier for me to go to work and have a job than to negotiate with my dad for money. I worked at a department store. And then pretty much as soon as I turned 18, I started cocktail waitressing and I did that for a few years. And then I bartended for 10, 12 years. And for anybody that wants to do litigation, 100% recommend working in the service industry for a while. It really helps you learn how to just talk to anybody. When I first started bartending, I had to work the crappy shifts. And I would read the entire newspaper because I needed to be able to talk to whoever came in and make them want to sit there and buy more drinks and tip me. Because if I didn't have tips, I wasn't going to eat or pay my rent. And so that kind of pressure really made it do or die. And I think that was really good for me. And I found out Everybody has an interesting story to tell and everybody has something unique about them. And if you talk to them and draw it out, you can really learn a lot. And I think that also helps me now with picking juries and seeing who people are. The other thing is when you're waiting tables, especially seeing the micro expressions people have, knowing when's the right time to approach and that kind of social awareness, I think that really helps you later on in your life as well. I worked as a performer in an equestrian show for two years and I trick rode and did all kinds of cool stuff on horseback. And then (laughs) I got serious about going back to school and then was bartending. I bartended the entire time I was in undergrad and law school. I forgot some jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you probably did. Yeah, because my mom, my, my whole family has just been like, you have to work. Similar to you, I started when I was 15 and a half at Starbucks. <laughs> like I worked yeah. as soon as I could. But I left out in college. I worked at the gym. I used my pool experience to check people in at the gym on <laughs> campus. <laughs> and then I also worked at this, um, the Lawrence. I went to Berkeley. They have a really well-known, prestigious lab. So it was the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And I worked there helping the recruiter. So I did recruiting for the lab. And then in law school, I didn't work, but I was on this journal where they paid you for summarizing Supreme Court decisions. Oh, wow. Yeah, you got payment by the hour. So, wow. Yeah, I forgot my school jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so when did you know that you wanted to be an attorney? I think I've said this before, but I didn't even know an attorney 
the only thing I knew about attorneys was attorneys you saw on TV. But I just kind of thought I would be good at it. And then when I went to undergrad, I double majored in philosophy and political science. And I was still pretty sure that I wanted to be an attorney. I just had a feeling I would be good at it. I will say that when I first got into law school, I thought I'd made a horrible mistake. But I'll talk more about that later. What about you? Um... It wasn't super clear to me either. Like similar to you, no one in my family was an attorney or even a professional for that matter. Um, Really, like my parents were the only people that I knew that kind of found professional careers. But that was kind of in tandem with me figuring out stuff myself. So I kind of didn't know what career paths were out there beyond the ones that I knew were stable and would make you money. Kind of like, you know, being a lawyer, being a doctor. Um, Like my family, um, about every side. I say every side because I have my mom, my dad, and my stepdad, but they all immigrated here. And it it was just kind of like the thing you do. You go and you become like a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't I didn't really know that you could like become an artist. Of course, like I had that 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 woman who was like, oh, you want to be on Broadway. And to me, when she said that, I was like, wait, can I do that? I don't even know. Like, maybe I can't. There's probably no money there. So I just always had it in the back of my head that I had to do something that was stable and reliable and like make me money and like a lot of money. And my family grew up really poor. And so like money was a really big factor. I'll just be honest. Like I wanted to have the ability to just buy stuff without really thinking about it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think at one point I considered, I was like, well, maybe I could do PR. I didn't really know what that was. I only kind of knew it from Sex in the City. (laughs) I was like, I think I'd be good at that. My family is also, my parents are tangentially related to law. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a criminal attorney. I think like my first exposure to the law world beyond them was in middle school. We had mock trial. Mm. And I took it so seriously, (laughs) but I had to be the prosecutor. And I just want to say whenever there's a mock trial, I don't think the person on the plaintiff's side or the prosecutor ever wins because you can't really have a fact. I don't know. That's just how I feel. You can't really have a fact pattern that favors if it's a criminal case. Yeah, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's really difficult in that type of mock trial. That's very difficult. Yeah. So I just felt like it was rigged (laughs) to do it again and (laughs) do it fairly. So, yeah, I always had in the back of my mind from middle school, from my family being or my parents being like tangentially involved in law. And then just because it seemed like a safe option. But yeah, like you, I had no idea what they did. I know that subconsciously, because my parents were divorced and they were so opposite in how they viewed everything. And the only reason I got to see my dad's side of the family was because of a court case that lasted two years and realizing that the court and the law and then the lawyers that argued that law had the power to make that happen. Somehow this framework of the law, if you knew how to use it, then you could make things happen or stop things from happening. I can remember being very little and thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. And I realize now that that was why, because I wanted to know how that worked. And then I wanted to not feel so powerless, I think. And I saw law as a way to have more control or understanding of how things actually work. And I believe that that's 100% true. Would you say that's why you became an attorney and what inspired you to go into law? Yes. Go into law? Yeah, okay. definitely. That's the next question. Yeah. Why did I become an attorney and what inspired me? I think it, it's what everything I just talked about, the stability of it. I similarly thought I would be really good at it. Everyone always said I had a problem talking back or arguing back, but I just felt like people never really fully explained things to me. And I just I did. I deserve to know. I think that young girls like us question things. We're not going to just accept what you say. We want to know why we're supposed to do that or why this works this way or why. Why is this rule or if there's this rule, is there an exception to the rule? Young girls get penalized for that even by people who are very well-meaning, much harsher than boys who ask questions. Mm -hmm. I I really think you and I have very similar personalities, and that helps us in our careers now. But I got told some of the same things. I was bossy or I asked too many questions, where Mm -hmm. I, I think if I had been a male child, I would have been taken more seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I got in trouble for it all the time. Yeah. So it was almost like, okay, let me find somewhere I can use this, I don't know, argumentative or hard-headedness or leadership skills yeah 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 Yeah. (laughs) my inquisitiveness and then why did I become an I guess and what inspired me 
I don't know. I think I had that that boss in my corner pushing me to go through with it. Because like I said, I did want to go into PR at one point. After um, college, I either I, I didn't have that job yet. And there was like a, a internship with Steve Aoki. I was like really into Steve Aoki. Out of oh, college. my God. Yeah, but it didn't pay anything. And oh, I was yeah. like, how am I supposed to live? My parents weren't going to give me any money. Right. So I was like, OK, I'll take this law firm job. I'll take the LSAT, see how I do. I'll apply. I was only going to go. And this might sound like conceited, but really, I was only going to go if I got in somewhere worthwhile. I was like, I'm not going to go to they rank the law schools for those who don't know. And at the time, I just knew I couldn't work that hard. I had worked so hard in high school, so hard in college. And that's not to say I didn't work hard, but I wanted that safety net. So I was like, if I don't get into a school that's like top 20, I'm not going. I'm not. So I worked hard and I, I got in. There is a benefit to that, to having that name recognition law school. I went to the University of Kansas, which is ranked really high for a state school. But a big part of that was I knew that's what I could afford. And I also Mm -hmm. knew I was going to have to work while I was in law school, even though I had taken out student loans. I worked two jobs when I was an undergrad. I didn't get to do any of the fun college stuff. I didn't get to join a sorority. All of my undergrad was me working. That's not to say I didn't have any fun because I had a lot of service industry friends and anyone that's worked in the service industry can tell you we know how to party. But (laughs) I didn't get the college experience that people have. And then in law school, I did really well on the LSAT. I'm really good at taking tests. I went to KU. I, I did get into several other schools. I was very tempted to go to the University of Miami, but then I saw how much it cost. And also, I know myself pretty well. I had to move back to the Midwest to get serious about undergrad. And I'm not going to be in Miami wanting to go to class or study. Mm, mm -hmm. I will just start bartending again and having a great time. (laughs) Yeah. KU was great. KU was a great school. We did win the national championship the year I graduated, which was 2008, which was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say I'm really bad at tests. I have horrible test anxiety. And a lot of law school is just a test at the end. Most of it, most of the core classes, you just have one test at the end. So I just knew I wasn't going to do that well and I needed to kind of I don't know use that in my advantage or like try and get into a a really good school because I just knew my grades weren't going to be that great. My first year was kind of heartbreaking. All of a sudden you're with all the other people that are the smartest person in the class and suddenly Mm -hmm. you're not the smart one anymore. And that was kind of disorienting for me. And then also I felt like everybody else was so far ahead of me. Everybody else either had parents as lawyers or their uncle was a lawyer. Literally in my small section, one of the girls, her dad was a federal judge. The other one, his dad was the dean of the law school. Meanwhile, I didn't even know a lawyer. (laughs) Everything was so foreign to me. I learned by doing, really. And everything was so esoteric. And Oh, yeah. 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 It was I thought I had made a horrible mistake. And honestly, if I had had a safety net or parents that would have paid for things, I might have quit. But I couldn't. I mean, I remember walking to class one day and being so depressed. Now, I wasn't serious about doing it, but a thought flipped through my head. Maybe if I just jump into oncoming traffic, then I don't have to keep doing this. But then I was like, nope, I don't have health insurance. And then I'll be bankrupt and still have the student loans. So I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) I had no choice. So the next question is, how did you know law was the right career path for you? It wasn't until my third year when I talked my way into an internship at the district attorney's office, which was a year-long internship where you got to actually try misdemeanor cases. You got a temporary license to practice law. It wasn't until I started doing that and getting to do actual trial work that I was like, oh my God, I can do this. This is what I want to do. This is for me. All of this time and effort wasn't wasted. I don't need to be so depressed that I work so hard to get somewhere that I I hate. I can do this. That, so that's my answer to that question. Yeah, I think for me, it was like once I took the LSAT and once I had my applications in and once I got in, it was like the bus is already going. The train's already in motion. I just yeah. have to stay on. So yeah. even though you know my first semester wasn't great and my second semester wasn't any better, I was like, I just have to make do and keep keep at it. And I think I realized it's really hard your first year to realize it's for you because most schools you're taking these classes that they make you take and you're not going to like all of them. It's things like property, which Angela hates and I like, Um, like crim law. I thought crim was cool. Civil procedure, just really dense, informative courses. So you might take those and then be like, this is horrible. I hate it. 
And for me, it wasn't until like my second year when I could choose the classes that I wanted to take. Like I did a trial advocacy class where we went through a full trial and how you're supposed to argue. And then the end was a mock trial. It wasn't until that then when I was like actually doing it and performing that it felt like it all clicked. And I was like, well, this is what I want to do. I don't want to sit in a lecture room and learn about uh, Twomley Iqbal. I don't care about that. <laughs> Like I, know I'm I supposed just had to, to argue that in a brief. <laughs> I know we're supposed to care about that stuff, but I just find it kind of boring. For me, it was boring just, when you're not using it, when you're not actually using it to advocate or defend, you know, when you're just learning it. Did you feel that way? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I struggled really hard with like contracts, which like a contract, <laughs> they're in like every business negotiation and deal. And it just wasn't, it didn't make sense until you put it into use and you're like okay this is a contract someone breached it i don't know yeah so, yeah yeah what type of law do you practice and why did you pick that type of law you practice I, mean, I think i pretty much answered that question when i was talking about how i hated law school until i got that internship as soon as i started doing actual trial work i got an a in trial ad i was like this is for me this is for me and it's a theater too trial is like theater you're telling a story and presenting everything and advocating on behalf of your client or defending your client or picking something apart. I just knew that trial work was for me. And I haven't deviated from that the entire time I've practiced. What type of law do you practice? Oh, well, I am a trial attorney. I do products liability defense. I've done that for a long time. My entire focus has been trial work. So litigation. Okay. So for me, I went into law school thinking crim law was pretty cool. But then I quickly realized at the law school, I was at Cornell, that there was a natural path to going into big law. And in a big law firm, you don't do criminal work unless you do white collar work. So I just knew I wanted to go to a law firm with really strong litigation in trial work. And as a summer associate, so, okay, let me step back because <laughs> I don't I, I know this isn't the same at every law school, but the way it works for the law school I was at is that after your first year, you start interviewing with law firms. They come to you, you interview with them. So it was just kind of a natural funnel into a law firm. And then you have your second year, then you summer for them after your second year. And then you get an offer at the end of your summer. And then you go into third year with an offer and you start after your third year. So as a summer associate, so between my second and third year at my firm, I tried white collar work and I tried intellectual property work. And I really wanted to do intellectual property or try it because it seemed to have the coolest cases. <laughs> just being honest, it had music and artists and just all the things that I liked in college and things that made me want to go into PR. It was like I could find it at the law firm. It ended up being that I didn't like the personalities that I worked with with White Collar. I really enjoyed the people that I worked with in IP and I really liked the cases. When you're a litigator, it kind of doesn't really matter what subject matter you're doing, if I'm being honest. A case is a case. They follow the same path. So it kind of seemed interchangeable. Like I probably could have done any type of litigation at the firm, but I really liked the type of work IP did, and I really liked the group I was working with, and that stuck. And then I just did intellectual property litigation, so stuff with, like, copyrights and trademarks and licensing and music and art and all that. And I really enjoyed it. And now I'm expanding into more general litigation, but still litigation, and I think IP might still be my focus. But, yeah, that's how I ended up there. I mean, it is so much about who you're with and who you're working with. I had that internship at the district attorney's office. They brought in actual practicing attorneys to teach trial ad. He was a renowned railroad defense litigator, and he hired me after he saw me cross-examine someone in one of our mock trials. And then I went to work for him. It was a very small boutique firm, and I did that for several years. And the railroad clients were fantastic because they continued to try cases. So I got to take witnesses and cross-examine experts and take all these depositions and all of this stuff my very first year out of law school, which I did not get paid anywhere near Sessie's career path, Ivy League school, big fancy white shoe firm, you're getting paid really, really well right out. Of, I was not. I would have never gotten that super marketable experience if I had not taken 
a lower paying job. The trial attorney that I worked with, his name is Bill Coates. He's still one of the best trial attorneys that I've ever met in my entire life. And I learned more from him than I have from almost anybody else. He'd had over 100 jury trials and was just a beast in the courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a really big trade off when you go into the big law versus just going straight into a smaller practice. Would you recommend becoming an attorney? Depends on what day you ask me. (laughs) Some days, absolutely, yes. I am very fortunate. The firm I'm a partner in now, I am so grateful to be with that firm. I am working with people I respect and admire. Everyone there is a real trial attorney. Everyone brings stuff to the table. It's such a great experience. If you can find a firm like the one I'm in now, also that's a broad question because as Ceci will say, there's so many different things you can do with a law degree. Not everybody has the personality for litigation. There's so many different things you can do within the law, and you don't even have to be a lawyer. All kinds of stuff it can be useful for. Being a sports agent, I mean, there's just a million things you can do with a law degree. So I would say generally, yes, I would. Yeah, I I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot of pros and cons. I think if you get a good job, you have stable income. You're not making bank. You're not (laughs) like you can't necessarily afford a private jet. I'm looking at you. What was that guy? What was the Miami husband's name? I mean, it's not all that lucrative and it is a lot of hard work. So you at the end of the day have to enjoy the work and sometimes you don't. It's hard. It's like you have to take the LSAT which is a long-ass test. Then you have to go to law school, which is a long-ass process, and we'll talk about that later. And then you have to take the bar. It's never-ending. And then if you want to move, like me, you have to take the bar again. Yeah. And and then you actually have to work, and you have to deal with personalities, and you have to deal with reading a lot of stuff, and you have to deal with drafting stuff, and sometimes you don't want to. So there are downsides to it. But if you find something that you like, it makes it worth it. If you are a woman or a person of color... I will tell you right now, if you think you want to go to law school, please go after it because we need more of you. We need more women. We need more people of color. We need more representation in the law. It will make our entire country better because when people know their rights, it makes you so much more powerful. For example, there was an incident where there was a police chase and it was a police chase that should not have occurred. And they ran into my grandpa who was on his way to mass and my 90 four-year-old grandpa had a punctured lung and three broken ribs and a broken sternum. And I knew exactly what to do to help make sure that never happened to somebody else again, or at least make them think twice about their policies and procedures in that city. And I did. Just knowing that you have the power to help somebody or to do something, I, I do recommend going to law school for that. It's, it's so worth it. What other careers were you contemplating or pursuing? Okay, so PR, like I mentioned. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And again, I don't really know what someone in PR does, but I feel like I had a general understanding. And I think that's why I like managing our social media so much there's like yeah. an aspect of that and you're really it. good at it <laughs> thank you let me step back in high school I took psychology and then I really wanted to be a psychiatrist oh. so I was going to do full pre-med when I went into Berkeley I had my schedule was a lot of the pre-med stuff and then I realized you have to do like calculus <laughs> and I never did that path I did statistics in high school so I quickly switched and I kept my psych major and added a legal studies major. And I was like, okay, well, I can go into law with this, I think. And and then, yeah, like I said, PR would have been a nice option as well. So yeah, what I, about you? I thought I wanted to be a doctor. But as I previously mentioned, I had a um, obsession with reading. And my mom had to tell the librarian in our town that I was not allowed to check out any medical books because I would check them out and then be convinced that I had every single disease that was in there. I also don't do very well with blood or things that smell bad. I don't think I would have lasted in medical school. Me neither. I faint when I see blood. What would you be doing if you didn't go to law school? I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. I can't, at this point, I can't imagine. At this point, I think I would have gotten frustrated by something. And even if I didn't go to law school when I did, I probably would have just to have it. I can't, I can't really, I can't really imagine that. I think I would have gone into tech because I was living in San Francisco Mm. after college. And that was what a lot of my friends did, just got into tech. Mm. All right. This is for you. My son has an ADHD and possibly wants to be a lawyer. What are your best tips for managing? But to be fair, I'm now on Adderall, too. So (laughs) So, who the hell knows? Okay, if you have ADHD and you want to become a lawyer, that's totally fine. The other thing I would say is don't ask for accommodations with your test taking and things like that, because you're going to have to function in the world where they're not going to give you accommodations. I didn't have any accommodations with any of my test taking. I took the same test at the same time in the same way that everyone else did. I didn't even consider asking for that. Now, if you have to, that's fine. But I'm saying try not to. That would be my advice because you're going to be existing in a world where a judge is not going to care. Your clients aren't going to care. And you need to learn how to function with everyone else. Otherwise, being really honest about it, I'm also dyslexic. I have multiple strategies for that, too. When I write something, I can literally put it in Google or another computer program and have it read back to me. So if I don't catch something with my eyes, I utilize my paralegals, my associates, and I just double check everything. But also, there's certain kind of, I don't know how to explain it, but maybe superpowers you get with ADHD where you can hyper-focus on things and you can really pull research. And then when you're in a stress environment, typically you're the calm one while everyone else is freaking out because you're comfortable there. There's no barrier to having a legal career with ADHD. So we already answered where we went to law school, but there's another question. Is law school really as hard as it is portrayed in TV? Ceci, what's your opinion on this? I don't think I've ever seen law school portrayed on TV. Yeah. I think maybe they mean movies or in the media. Honestly, no, legal, it's harder. I, I mean, I don't know. Legally blonde is pretty accurate, actually. It's it's really hard. Yeah. It's really, really, really hard. It's nothing like I expected. I think because there's usually only one test at the end, especially for those core classes, I didn't realize that I needed to be studying the stuff that was being taught to me as it was being taught. 
I relied on the strategies that I had in college, which is just to cram and make it work. And that doesn't work. So that was a huge adjustment going from just being able to cram everything and get an A or a B to then realizing in law school, no, you have to be reading all this stuff as you're learning it and reviewing at the end of the week and then reviewing for the final. That was very difficult. And then, yeah, you're going up against people who are just brilliant. They were the top of their classes in college, and now they're in your law school classes sitting next to you. So it was really difficult. And and you have a really big workload. None of the classes your first year are just throwaway classes. Like I remember in college, I took music history for fun, American music history. You know, that was like a class and I got credits for it, but that was just a random easy class. There wasn't that in law school. Every class was difficult and it was similar in that it was just one test at the end. And it's stuff I had never learned before. That stuff was just so foreign. So you're coming in with a baseline zero. You're coming in, everyone else is just as smart as you or smarter and retaining this stuff better. And, you know, for me, I wasn't studying every week. So it was really, really, really hard. If it's a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the hardest, I would give it a 12. Part of the problem for me, too, was I kept working on the weekends and then I didn't really have much of a support system in law school because I was bartending on the weekends. I'd have to drive 40 minutes to where I'd been bartending before I started. And everybody had all these outlines that have been passed down and I didn't know about them. These outlines were so specific, they'd even include jokes that the teachers made. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I didn't find out about those until later. And again, it's just so esoteric and there's not a lot of practical knowledge as far as you're learning this because when you have a client that wants this, this is what mm-hmm. you need to know. Especially the first year, I didn't understand what the teachers were looking for on the tests, And it was a lot harder for me to organize my thoughts. I wish now that I had just gotten the Barbary stuff, the bar prep oh, stuff I know. in right. the very beginning. Yeah. So if you're starting mm-hmm. law school, go ahead and get that right away, first year, and start looking at that and learning mm-hmm. what you need to learn. I wish I had known that. And if I, had, if I know. I, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. And then like I had a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of cold calling, especially at my mm-hmm. school. I don't know how your school was. but Oh, no, it was that way. We had somebody pass yeah. out once because they you would have to go to the front of the classroom and stand up at a podium while the teacher was calling on you. And we actually had somebody pass out one time because it was so stressful. <laughs> yeah, I would prepare for it. But then the, the thing that came out of my mouth didn't match what I thought I was going to say. So it was just <laughs> like so stressful. I'm about to turn 40 and will be applying to law school in 2024. Any tips? You're going to be great. The people that actually had real world experience and had had jobs and all kinds of stuff that started law school, they did really, really well. I think you have more just practical real world experience and you're not kind of so shell-shocked. Also, what Ceci and I just said, get the Barbary stuff your first year. And when you're taking your contracts exam, that will help you (laughs) and property and everything else. I think my tip would be like for the applications itself, Maybe don't write what the obvious answers might be for the personal essays. Make it interesting. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. Don't talk about a mission trip or something else. Because a lot of people have the same stories. So you want to maybe say it in a way that makes you stand out. I mean, I would still give the advice of trying to get into the best possible law school you can because it will pay itself off in the end if you can land a high paying job after. And then after that, you can follow your heart desires and your dreams. But I just found it to be a really an easier path forward. If if I had to do it again, I'd do it the same way. Any tips for surviving 3L? I'm trying to remember my 3L year. My 3L year, I was doing that internship and then I was still bartending on the weekends. That was rough. I was going to law school full time, bartending on the weekends. And then so I'd wake up in the morning, go to class and then go to my internship at the DA's office And I can't really remember a lot of my 3L year because it was so hectic. But (laughs) just focus on the end goal, which is passing the bar exam. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like my 3L year was the most interesting. So I don't know if I needed to survive. I thought I was having the time of my life. I I, I took a, 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 a 
what do we call them? I don't remember what we call them, but it was like you had actual clients that got to actually like defend them in court and stuff like that. Oh, like a clinic, like a a clinic. Yeah, yeah I did yeah. a clinic. Um, yeah, do stuff that like that awesome. if you can. Anything that's going to give yeah. you any real world training, because unlike medical school where you have a residency and you actually learn the skills that you really need to be a doctor, law school doesn't have that. So you have to seek that out either through your school saying, or finding an internship where you actually get to practice or something where you actually get to do something substantive. If you go to work at a big firm, big firms have huge clients. I'm in a big firm right now. You don't give substantive work to baby attorneys because the client does not want that. <laughs> so do whatever you can to get practical experience, even if you're volunteering or you're only getting paid $8 an hour. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say. My 3L year was filled with so much experience and just, I don't know if I have any tips for surviving because to me it felt like just worlds different than 1L year and even 2L year because I was enjoying myself and doing things I really liked. I didn't want it to end actually. Taking the bar exam soon. (laughs) How do I avoid panic dread? Would love to hear experiences. You can go first on this one. So I had a system. It was do or die for me because I had a job, but I wasn't going to get to keep that job if I didn't pass the bar exam. I was going to have to start paying back my student loans. I did not have family that was going to give me money. I did take advantage of living with my cousins while I was studying for the bar exam so that I could only work part-time. And then I also presenting the Barbary class material so that I would have the videos myself if I wanted to rewatch them. They just give you all these videos that you play and everybody sits and watches and then you take practice tests and stuff. If I didn't pass, I was going to be totally screwed. So I had everything organized down to a T. I woke up in the morning, I ate this. Then I spent this much time working at the law firm I was at. And then the second part of the day, By noon, I would go on my run in the middle of the day, and I'd run two and a half or three miles. Then I'd go home and shower, and then I would go to the place where I was putting on the Barbary class, and I would do that. And then I would go home after that was done and then study for another hour and then eat dinner and go to bed. And that was a set routine, so I knew exactly what was going to happen each day, and I did not deviate from that. For the next couple months of my life, this is the only thing I'm doing. Taking away the uncertainty of what I was going to do each day helped me a lot. I also felt, okay, I know I've done every single thing I can to pass this. But when I sat down to actually take the bar exam, I was shaking so hard, I was having a hard time bubbling in the answers because I knew I had done everything I could to pass. What could I what could I do different next time if I don't pass this time? But being really organized about your study plan, I think, is helpful. Yeah. So I took the New York bar and now I'm studying for the California bar. So I'm in the same boat as you, question giver. The first time I went and I lived at home, a lot of my friends stayed in Ithaca to study. But I just I was like, I know I'm going (laughs) to be really distracted and want to hang out with you guys. So I just went home and had a little room set up with a desk. And I actually did also work. That's when I started volunteering with the um, Legal Aid Society, the domestic violence clinic. So I would work by day and then at night I would study. And Barbary, I don't know if they still say it, but they were like, once it hits 4th of July, that's when you have to really put your head down and just focus on this. So I worked until 4th of July and then stopped and then just really like Angela set up a schedule and it was just like eat, sleep, study. And that's when Pokemon Go came out. So I was also playing Pokemon Go around the neighborhood to get some exercise for at least an hour just because you do need to still take care of your health because it'll affect your mind. This time, 4th of July again, was the date by which I started putting my head down and doing it. But it's different because now I just have to take the essay portion and not the NBE. So it's It's just a different type of learning and a different type of testing that I'll have to go through. But all that being said, I wish I would have done more practice tests the first time around. I did pass, but still just done more of the practice test because it's just such a different environment when you get there. And then this time, too, I've heard it's all about just taking practice essays and not necessarily memorizing everything. I'm assuming you're taking the whole thing. And to avoid the panic and dread, you can take it again. I know for some people, like, yeah, your job is dependent on it, like Angela said, but 
you really can't take it again. I am licensed in Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. I had to take the Kansas bar, which I took first, and then I took the Missouri bar, but I scored high enough on the the multi-state bar exam that I only had to take the essay portion for Missouri. And then by the time I moved to Texas, I had practiced for so long that I just had to give them 10 years of my tax returns to prove that I had practiced consistently as an attorney and actively. And then my scores from the ethics exam. I think Texas has changed that now. I think I snuck right in. And I'm actually probably going to take the Florida bar exam next year. So... I will be having to repeat this process. But oh, you- and then another tip, like when you get there, I always have hated the people that are like flailing around and running around and mm-hmm. showing outward displays of stress like that, where it's like, oh, they have like their notes and they're like, oh, have you studied this? And it's like, avoid those people. Those it, people are not good for your mental health. You need to stay focused. Yeah. You don't want that in your life. Like, nope. put your head down, focus on what you need to focus on. You should not be studying at that point. <laughs> Everything that you've learned yeah. should have already been learned. You're not going to magically now learn the the elements of whatever that morning. So just avoid those people. Yeah. And I will say I, I'm not the smartest person on the planet. There are people that I know did better than me in law school and did not pass the bar. And they took it again and then they passed it. Sometimes that's just how it goes. And Ceci's right. You can take it again. Obviously, that's not ideal. That's not something you want to happen. But you can take it again. So don't panic too much if you can. Control what you can control. You can control your schedule. You can control how much you're studying. Also, if you have ADHD, bring earplugs so you're not distracted by people's clicking or pencils or rattling or nervous noises. Earplugs are your friend. What's the next one? How did you arrive at the firms where you work? So I am currently at a national products liability defense firm. It's an amazing firm. Like I said, I love it. I love the people there. I was found by a recruiter. And in fact, I just saw her out the other day and gave her a big hug and was like, thank you so much. She recruited me for the firm. And then I interviewed and I had done a ton of research because I had been in other firms. I've had my own firm. Before I went to another firm, I wanted to make sure that that was where I should be. And it was a perfect fit for me. So it was it was a really good recruiter that found me and matched me up with this firm. So that's how I ended up at the firm I'm at now. Yeah. So I haven't shared, but I'm actually technically between jobs right now. I was at the law firm that I've been with for the past seven and a half years. And like I explained before, it was through that recruiting process that a lot of law firms will do for some of the law schools. So I got it through that process and I was there seven and a half years. And I recently made the decision that I wanted to have a little bit more authority and say in my practice and more just flat out experience. So I'm going to a smaller boutique firm And I found that through a recruiter as well. What is the ratio of women to men at the firm where you work? At the big firm I was at for the seven plus years, it was not the best ratio, but we had a really strong ratio of female partners to male partners, which was nice. I think this firm I'm going to now has a more even split, but it's also just smaller. That was one of the things I researched before I came to the firm I'm at now. I wanted to make sure that there were women and people of color in the leadership. So on the executive committee, in the managing partners in the different cities, I wanted to make sure that people's voices were getting heard. And then I would say my firm has an excellent job. Like the vice president of our firm is a woman. There's multiple managing partners at the various offices that are women. And we have some fantastic diversity and inclusion people who are amazing. Yeah, um, I'll add that, yeah, the firm I was at also had diversity and inclusion people and affinity groups, which was really nice. I was actually one of the advisors for the Latino, Latina group. I think they made really big strides to recruit diverse candidates. I think my new firm has that as well, but it's, again, really, really small. So I don't think it's at the same extent. I don't think we need an affinity group for the the three of us who are Hispanic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) you are the affinity group. Yeah. (laughs) And because this question was asked, so the 
firms that I worked at before I came to this firm, both of those firms, I was the only female attorney. Now, I was working in a very boutique niche field doing railroad defense, and there just were not a lot of female railroad trial attorneys. I absolutely loved defending the railroads. I loved learning about the industry, but I was the only female attorney in both of those firms. And it it would have been nice to have another female attorney in one of those firms that I worked at. How big are the firms where each of you work? So the first firm I was at that I recently left was, I think, over a thousand attorneys. I know we had, I think, 10 offices in the U.S., maybe five or six outside of the U.S. So it was a big firm. I was fortunate in that, like I mentioned, I moved around a lot. So I worked in our New York office. I worked in our Houston office and then our San Francisco office. So I got to see a lot of those attorneys. Of course, not all of them, but I got a good subset of it. But it was massive. And then the firm I'm going to now, I think there are 40. So it's just such a huge difference. I guess it's kind of like taking just the San Francisco office and that being the entire firm. The firm I'm at now has about 200 attorneys across the country. So it's not one of the biggest firms, but it's not a small firm either. Proudest moment in the courtroom, legal moments you're proudest of. I've been practicing for almost 15 years now. I would say the one of the legal moments that I'm the proudest of was a civil rights case that I had. And it was at the first firm that I worked for, and I begged them to let me take it. It was in civil rights action for um, denial of medical care to a man named Arthur Bolden, who died in the back of a police car. And his mom and his niece had gone to three other firms before, and they'd all turned them down. They came to our firm, and I begged my firm to just let me just like at least research it now and just see what happened. And I had to file a writ of mandamus, which I don't think had been filed in any court in the Kansas City area for probably 100 years in order to get them to turn the records over to see if there was a case. And when I got the video and saw what happened, I was just absolutely heartbroken. They had put this man in the back of the police car and he very politely begged for help. This is a black man and all of the white officers just mocked him. And said, when you quit breathing, we'll call fire. It's actually really hard to talk about. Once we got that, I knew that we did have a case and it was only a month before the statute of limitations. And so I researched and filed the civil rights action in the District of Kansas in federal court. Being able to use my law degree to advocate for this family, I'm very proud of that to lighten it up a little bit. I have to say when you first start practicing and when you're a trial attorney, even if it's a small misdemeanor case, the first time you get an objection sustained in real life Oof. feels so good. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It feels so good. <laughs> you know, objection leading and sustained. I remember the first time that happened in misdemeanor criminal court when I was working as a prosecutor and try to keep my poker face so they didn't realize how excited I was. <laughs> Yeah. My proudest moment in the courtroom. So, I mean, I'm so like looking forward to having more moments in the courtroom because it I am fortunate in that my firm, my big firm, my big law firm had a lot of cases go to trial, which is pretty rare. I know my new firm will have a lot more. So I'm excited about that. But kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, but when I was examining a witness and then the other side would object and then the judge would just... <laughs> overrule theirs, like the reverse of that. And then I think the case that I'm the most proud of, so my typical work is with a lot of corporations and sometimes we get artists. So it's hard for me to say like, oh, I'm so proud of that because it's just not really, sometimes isn't really impacting a person, but the pro bono work that I've done has been really impactful and like my law firm required us to do pro bono, but I would have done it out of the goodness of my heart. So one of the first pro bono cases I got was against the Port Authority Police Department in New York. So they oversaw the the Port Authority bus terminal. And there were instances in which officers in plain clothes would go up to someone like using the urinal and, according to our clients, expose themselves and when the person would look over, they would arrest them for indecent exposure. 
And we argued that it was basically entrapment. A lot of these men who were entrapped, like strongly indicated they were not exposing themselves. They were using the restroom and they felt like they were targeted because they were gay or appeared to be gay or of the LGBT community. So we took on that case and it lasted, I want to say from when I was like a first year until fifth year or something. And I got to like argue in court in it. And I had really close relationships with the clients and we ended up settling with them and they put in reforms where now they can't do plainclothes policing in the Port Authority bathrooms. And then the two named clients got a money settlement and it was written about in the New York Times, which was really cool. And so that was a really proud and memorable case. It's hard for me to talk about how great it was without thinking about the bad because there were a lot of people who couldn't be a part of the lawsuit as like class members because we couldn't get the class certified because they had different stories and different outcomes in their arrests. But I am glad that now everyone benefits from these policy changes. Of course, there's always room for better and more and, you know, different ways for officers to behave. But, you know, it was it was a net positive outcome for everyone. Yeah, that's amazing. And Ceci, don't sell yourself short about representing companies. Companies are made up of people. In my defense jury trials where I've gotten defense verdicts in federal court, I am very proud of those because a lot of times from the plaintiff's side, and I've done plaintiff's work too, so I'm not bashing plaintiff's attorneys, but from the plaintiff's side, they really want to paint the picture of this big evil corporation, but really corporations are made up of people. They're made up of everyday normal people who really care about their jobs and want to do a good job. And they're painted in a way that makes it look like, oh, you're just part of this big bad machine, but that's not true. Especially defending some of my bigger corporate clients, I am so excited and to learn about what people do and then how to tell that story and say these people are not bad and evil. This person loves their job and is doing an amazing job and gets up every single day and puts their heart and soul into their work and getting to present that person to a jury and getting them to tell their side of the story is incredibly rewarding. Even if you're defending a company, you're still defending people. True, true. I just think a lot of my proud moments were also outside of the courtroom. So, yeah. So I guess for you, I'll ask most heart-wrenching case. And then for me, I know there was a question about if there's any cases that we would know about. So I can answer that but because I don't have any heart-wrenching cases. And I talked about the police case. That one was tough. But I would say I was just trying to, one, force the that particular police department to recognize that what they had done was wrong and change their policies, but then also do whatever I could to help the family. I'd say that the most difficult case I had was when I I had a, a very rural judge in Kansas talk me into coming out a couple days a week and working on some child in need of care cases because they really needed attorneys to do that so that they could get the children in better situations and they needed attorneys to represent the parents. Everything I'm going to say happened in open court so I can talk about it. But yeah. one of the hardest things I think that I've done was there was a parent who was being asked to give up the rights to her children. And I knew from talking to her and meeting with her that she was not in a psychological state where she would understand what she was doing if that happened. And I had to assert her constitutional rights. And I had to walk into that courtroom and the the judge, the attorney on the other side, all of the social workers were absolutely furious and just hated me for making it more difficult for this to happen. But my job was not to make them happy. I was this woman's attorney. I was this woman's counselor at law. And it was my duty to defend her rights. Did it make everyone else's job more difficult? Yes, because we had to go through this process, but there's no way I was going to let this person waive their parental rights without knowing what they were doing. And so I had to go in and make those constitutional arguments and then get her set up with a counselor and delay the process further. But that was my job as her attorney. And so it was just very hard all around. It was a bad situation for her. She had been through a ton of trauma. You know, when you are an attorney, your duty is to your client and doing the right thing for your client. And that was really, really tough. Yeah. So like I said, I haven't had any 
<laughs> heart-wrenching cases. I think it was heart-wrenching when I like lost my first trial or was on a team where we lost. That was heart-wrenching. Oh, yeah, that's always rough. <laughs> sit there and just you're standing in a courtroom full of people and you just have to like smile and walk out. Very difficult. And I was very junior. So it's not like I was calling the shots by any means, but still. But yeah, someone asked if there were any cases we would recognize. I've shared on our Instagram before. I My last trial with my firm was representing T.I. and Tiny. It was a case about likeness in a girl group that they created and it being infringed, we alleged, by MGA Entertainment, who makes or used to make the Bratz dolls and now makes the LOL surprise dolls. So that was very high profile in the sense that there were a lot of articles about it. That was interesting, having to navigate that. So that's probably the most recognizable. We ha- I had a lot of music cases that involved infringement, secondary copyright infringement of the songs. The songs were all songs that we all know, but it wasn't really like about like the song chorus or whatever being infringed. So like if you looked at the files that, that we were talking about, yeah, you'd be able to recognize them. But it's not like it wasn't anything that was in pop culture. So should we stop here? Yeah. Next episode, it's going to be your podcast questions, a bunch of miscellaneous current event questions, and then a bunch of fun questions, including a bunch of housewives questions. And then Ceci and I each have some questions that we're going to ask each other that we just kind of added ourselves to the list that we got from you guys. You guys asked a lot of really fun questions, and I hope you guys enjoyed this. And maybe it helps somebody that's thinking about going into law. Or if you're not going into law, maybe you found it entertaining. Inter- yeah, interesting. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Bye, legal team. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Bravo Docket is part of the Acast Creator Network.